given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show and part two of my interview with Tony Saunders, the great bassist. And we pick things up with Tony talking about growing up and learning music and music production under the tutelage of his father, Merle. Um, with, with, with definitely being around my dad has helped. I'm able to do all types of music, um, whether it be jazz, straight ahead jazz, um, whether it be you know the contemporary jazz, whether it be country, whether it be gospel, whether it be you know, folk music, or whether it be rock and roll, or whether it be like jam band stuff. Uh, and um, I, I just encompassed everything that I watched him do, and now it's a part of my everyday life. And, it, and you know, I, I stop and think that, you know, from when I was very young, um, you know, I, I got exposed to studios and saw people recording, and, um, you know, from from eight-track machines all the way up to, uh, right. uh, you know, right. whatever it is right. now, F, working on an SSL board, you know, the highest quality level. You know, you had a, a friend of mine on your show that I listened to a, a little while ago, Melvin Seals. Oh, sure. I remember, I remember when Melvin Seals had a four-track. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I would, I would, him and my dad would do stuff, and, uh, you know, that was, it was on two-track and four-track, and then... It went to eight track, then sixteen, then we were at Fantasy all the time. Um, I remember when Fantasy only had eight track, um, when it was in San Francisco. And um, and then I just saw it evolve and I always paid attention to the production. I always paid attention to the producers, um, and the engineers, because I engineer as well. Uh, and uh, you know, I didn't realize that, that would be my life, you know, twenty five years later. But I guess starting in nineteen 81, I really started to, so I was 26. Starting from when I was 26, I really, really was uh, trying to be a producer and a songwriter and engineer and a bassist. So I tried to put it all together from then, totally. What were you, you know, it's funny, uh, a buddy of mine on, in, uh, in the new media world, and one of your good buddies, Michael Hinton, uh, he was he was in a band with your dad. Uh, full Moon was it? No, it wasn't Full. That's another. High, high Noon. High Noon. What yeah. were you doing in '81 though? I mean, wh- where was your professional career at at that point? Oh um, I was playing with David Crosby and um, and the Hawkins family. Wow. Yeah, I did that whoa, whoa! In, in, on the simultaneously si- for five years. <laughs> besides, besides, I had an R and B hit record um, on another artist, uh, Robert Winters and Fall had this song called Magic Man. So in 1981, I had my first hit record um, that went up the R&B charts. Um, the song that I wrote totally was um, When Will My Love Be Right? And um, that came out on Buddha Records on the artist Robert Winters. And um, 
Robert Winters. Oh, wow. Robert Winters and Fall. Phenomenal singer. Man, he had some stuff that, that I'm still trying to get out that he did with my dad. Just, a, just His singing was like breathtaking. Well, what made it so good? Uh, man, he just could sing. He was a guy in a wheelchair. Wow. And, uh, man, he could sing from the bottom of his heart. You know, and uh, my God, I'll send you some stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, I guess, traditional R&B type voice. And so um, one of the songs that he demoed called Come To Me For My Dad, um, we went to L.A. to record that with Johnny Mathis with my dad. Um, and he did the demo, and Johnny Mathis heard the demo, and he was going like, why do you want me to sing? <laughs> you know, so it was Wait, did a you, classic uh... voice. And the guy, Robert Winters, um, he had a, a hit record called Magic Man, and it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was definitely, you know, like up there on the charts, up in the top 20 on, on R&B and uh, the top 100. You know, I, so many, did you have anything to do with, uh, did you play a role in San Francisco After Dark, that hit that your dad had in 82? Oh, yeah, I'm playing bass on it. Oh, my, dude, Tony, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just admit, I can, I can be honest on the Jake Feinberg show, it's my show. I have not uh, ever heard that before. If you even have like a, a CD of it, I'd love, because you know what, the record is a big, it's an expensive record. Yeah, it's hard yeah, to no, get. It's hard great, to find. That's a great record. Um, that, I think that guy Robert Winters is on that record. That's why. I, yeah. Wow. And he's singing yeah, on I that. It, it, yeah. Um, that was a. You know, I'll have to find it. <laughs> um, I will find it, but um, I have it somewhere here. <laughs> uh, no, there's one like. I mean, there's one on a this online site that I check occasionally. It's uh-huh. like it's like it's like San Francisco After Dark, Merle Saunders. It's like thirty eight bucks, thirty nine bucks. Yeah. No. Hey, you know what? Somebody. You know, with the um, you just a, a little sidebar. So I have a new band now called right. Keystone Corners. Besides doing my jazz stuff, um, and with Michael Hinton and uh, Bill Vitt and uh, Steve Abramson from from um, Tucson, and uh, uh, Diana Morago from Marengo, the girl who used to sing with Paul Kantner. Wow! And, and Keith Keith Dion, and um, we're playing like the music of Merle and Jerry. And, and a couple of Starship tunes, and then some of my songs from that period. Um, so um, we got a new band for you to look out for. Well, you know, I have a question for you, Tony, because like, uh, I'm curious. I, with, with that sort of pedigree you know, of musicians, um, do you anticipate that a lot of original stuff will come? Yeah, yeah, we already, um, I have a song that I originally, um, it's called, this song is called It's a Love, It's a Love Theme. And I originally did that song to give to Bonnie Raitt, and um, she, um, her record was already done by the time we gave it to her. And she really liked the song because she kept it on hold for a year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she never recorded it. Right. Um, and so um, I want to, I want I want Diane to sing that one. And uh, yeah, we got a few, a few ones. I got a song that I did with Buddy Miles uh, called "Come Back." That Buddy Miles sang like no end. I mean, there was one thing to work with Buddy Miles. I mean, he's a great guy and everything. But there was, there was sometimes there was different stuff. But he was a great guy. I loved him. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, do you, do, you, do you, I mean, like, are you saying as far as it was substance abuse or just like personality? Yeah, I was around it when it was that stuff. And, and it was just like, you know, I was around Crosby when that stuff happened. Yeah, I was going to say Crosby, like, I saw... I was, with, I was there in Texas when he got arrested. All I'm going to say is I saw some sort of like Maury Povich show, you know, going back 20 years. Like, Crosby got arrested in 85, I think. Yeah, and yeah. he looked like 
he didn't look like he even belonged on on any planet. He looked yeah, insane. It, it was, it, it was, I was square to the apple when I met David Crosby. And by the time I was uh, at the end of the five, six years, I had seen a lot. <laughs> Tony, yeah. that is really a compelling story. Hey, you know what? It seems, it seems to be a reoccurring theme. Uh, less so with your pops, because I think your 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 pops probably the military background really uh, mm -hmm. gave him a real sort of structure to his life and 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 steered him away from that. But Melvin talked. Melvin Seals talked about. I mean, he he. You probably heard the story. You know, he he the he uh, he had no affiliation with the dead. Didn't really know anything about him. Shows up. Yeah. At, shows up at club front, and you know, man of the church, gospel, right. and a, a yeah, he didn't know he, Melvin. You know, because I. I we, Larry Van, Melvin, and uh, myself, I played on probably all Melvin's gospel records for a period in the 70s. Um, Get out of here. Dream, we were, I was probably like 19, 20, and um, Melvin had this studio in, you know, in, in, his, in his sister's basement. And, uh, yeah, we didn't, you know, we all were church people. And uh, uh, Melvin was really church person. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we had no idea, and he would always ask me, well, how is it, Tony, to be out there with, you know, doing the stuff with your dad and Garcia and stuff like that? And then I think the first gig he got was with Elvin Bishop, and then, you know, on to Garcia and stuff. And, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, we were, we were um, I played on probably nine or ten albums uh, for uh, Melvin prior to him getting exposed to, I think the first person that he hooked up with was Mickey Thomas and Elvin Bishop. I think it was even Mickey Thomas, and then, um, and then I, I played with. I think I played with Maria Moldere before he did. So, so then he started playing with Maria Moldere and Maria Moldere with John Kahn. So then that's how they got hooked up with Jerry. Yeah. So did you did you know Melvin like? So you knew him in music circles. Uh, yeah, yeah. I knew him since I was really young. And he was out playing like if you were if you were out playing. Uh, I have a question for you, actually. What? Because like you, so I really want to get this story down. I want to nail this story down because this is part of of music history. And as an aside, Tony, I never sent you this blog. I put it on. I put it up online, but um, that somebody took a a really nice clip of our interview last time and uh -huh. uh, and put it in there in, in a blog about uh, what the uh, it was a it was a venue that your dad and Garcia used to play or Aunt Monk used to play at the Sand Dunes. Uh -huh. And what is yeah. what is it now? You know what is it now? But I don't know. I don't no, no, that's what he was talking about. It's like some like antique shop or something. I don't know. But it, the point is that, that you're you're quoted in this blog, and uh, it's like broke down palace or something. It's it's pretty classic. So I'll send it along to you. But what were you doing? Like right on the cusp, there in 1973, there came a call. From from Parish or somebody or saying Khan can't make a gig. I just want to know the date, and I need a, sa a first generation well, soundboard of that. You, uh, I can't tell you the exact date, but I do know this: that um, uh, uh, Khan was playing with Brewer and Shipley at the time. Right, right, right. And and, um, and then so my dad said, you know, when I first started getting good, um, my dad, um, you know, I would play like at the end of the night, like on one song. And, you know, but I was there, like, every day. And I could play just like John Kahn because I learned from him. I could even stand like he used to stand. I could still do it if I have <laughs> But it's, like, inside of me. I went to John Kahn's house, him and his wife. They were, he would sit there and watch me play. 
and he would tell me stuff, and then he would tell me to listen to James Jameson. And uh, and uh, so what happened was, so then I, I got to sit in with them. Um, why the Sand Dunes came about is because when I sat in at the end of the night, I would play one song. Then my dad said, hey, I'm going to take this place on Monday night so that you can learn all the material. And it was basically, he started Ant Monk so that I could have a group to play in. Um, that was on his level. Right. I did play with a lot of other groups, like, um, you know, with a lot of people my age, um, because I grew up with the Hayes family. Um, Chris Hayes ended up being the guitar player with Huey Lewis in the News. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and we played with Esther Phillips together. Um, uh, Bonnie Hayes, his sister, wrote all of those hit, wrote a lot of hit tunes for uh, Billy Idol and Bonnie Raitt. And, um, when you say you then, played with them, you, you were hired to go on tours with them? You cut out? We had a group called Sweet Me, and we were just like really young kids. Wow. We opened up for Billy Cobham and, and Billy Cobham, George, the George Duke Billy Cobham band, um, when they had like Alfonso Johnson and... Oh, yeah, no, that's more like, uh, that, 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 that's more like 76. Okay, well we did, we were still together then as a group, because we opened up for that group at Keystone Berkeley. Did it? I mean... It left, can you put into words what we continually love to talk about is this idea that you, all your mentors were like some of the incredible. most well, incredible. Let me, I'll, let me, let me, the sand dunes, what happened was, <laughs> let me, let me, I'll finish that part first. Okay. The sand dunes was originally started, I remember they charged $5 at the door, and, and my dad had started Aunt Monk, right? And then Jerry started coming there, besides their Keystone gig, unannounced. And he would, he would, he really liked to, um, him and my dad, I just learned this like three weeks ago because I was with Paris, mm. that they were really proud of me and my development. So we used to play at that place, the Sand Dunes, and then if they weren't working on the weekends, uh, my dad would work at this place called the Generosity on Union Street in San Francisco. And that was basically just so I had some place to play on their level. So I knew all of those songs innately. I, they were just like internalized in me um mm. and i could play them just like john Kahn, and then i i started adding my own thing to it eventually um, um and uh and then then it came the time when john was playing with brew and shipley and my dad said are you ready and uh, he said can you handle it and i was like yeah mm. um, and i was like nervous as heck in the first gig i was like nervous as heck <laughs> nervous 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 i have pictures of it somebody sent me a picture of it recently and i noticed that i'm standing by my dad's left-hand side so I could wash his hand just in case I got lost. Right. And um, and it was just a great experience. It was great music. And somebody sent me tapes, and I could hear Garcia talking to me. He's like, oh, because there was one song I didn't know called, that they did, Pennies from Heaven. And I, I like, messed up all over the place. Oh, my. And, but then at the end of this, Jerry said, hey, Tony, it's okay. You didn't know it. We didn't, you know, I, 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 you didn't know that one. But, yeah, you know what? You're playing great. And I could hear him talking. He said, don't worry about it, Tony. It's cool. Yeah, here's the here's here's the thing. How was your? Did your dad take your family to church a lot? Did my dad take me? To yeah, church? I mean, no. Because were you? Because you said like Melvin was a church going guy, and you guys were church going, but it was different level. Yeah. Well, Melvin went. Melvin played in churches, and he knew all the people uh, in churches, and he had like this whole record company going, Secret Records, and you know, I recorded maybe three or four records for him on that label. And then, 
um, I went to church. My grandmother took me to church every Sunday. Right, I was going to say, because your dad, your dad was down in the Fillmore District, wasn't he, most of the time? Yeah, he worked at Jack's, and then they had to play, you know, till 2 in the morning, and then they went back for that jam session at, from 6 to 10 or something like that. Oh then he went to sleep. Did you, did you get to go and at least observe that? Uh, did you check out those jam sessions at the Fillmore West? Oh, yeah, sometimes. sometimes what? I, I mean, I went you... to the Matrix because you could uh, you could go there. The Matrix was on Fillmore. I went to the Botan on Divisadero. I saw right. George Duke there when I was a young kid. I used to always, I loved George Duke, and I used to always, like, listen to him play, you know. And uh, besides my dad, you know, I love George Duke's music. It's fucking, it's, it's in me. Um, and, uh, you know, these, um, the both band had, had, had great music, and there was this place called the Upper Room on, uh, on uh, Visadero, too, where I could go and, and hang out. But you have to remember that all of these famous people, they came to my house. Herbie, uh, you know, uh, Herbie Hancock. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's just mine, it's mine, but they also, they came to your house, they came to your house right in, in their primes. Right, right. That, that it's not like you you met them when they were eighty five or ninety or like little kids. They like mm-hmm. they were like at their peak. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize what was going oh on. Oh my god! You know the pop stars. I did because for a while, um, Dionne Warwick's husband played drums with my dad, Bill Eaton. And and one time Dionne Warwick came to my house, and I charged my friends a dollar to look at her. Right. No, hold on. Is that William Eaton? Yeah, William Eaton. Yeah. Dude, yeah. he played drums with your dad. Yeah, he played drums with my dad. You know who else did? Um, the guy, um, the guy that ended up marrying Natalie Cole, Andre Fisher. I don't know that drums. name, but I sure as heck know. Uh, William Eaton. Dude, William Eaton made some serious albums in this uh, on a, on the Black Jazz label in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and then his son is like a tremendous producer right now. Do, do you do you uh, um, like like Khan? You'd go to his house. His wife would be there, and and yeah. you know, you he would be giving I'm still you. With his wife. Would you actually play? And like he would just, he would instill confidence in you and give you pointers. And it was just, it was he one of those things where the basic stuff. The first guy to ever teach me anything was this great guitar player that played with my dad. Um, oh God, John White Junior. John White, yeah, yeah. There's a picture of him upstairs in my house. John God White. bless that guy, and man. Then, and then after that, my dad would drive me out to Fairfax. And John Conn and his wife Dee, they lived in a little house out there in Fairfax, and, and he would actually sit with me. I'd be there for a couple of hours, and then I'd learn as much as I could, comprehend. And then, like, every day when my dad went to the studio, I'd go in the studio, um, and I'd, I'd, like, go in the ISO booth, and I'd be playing bass. And they, they him and the engineer, which the guy is a really famous engineer now, Brian Big Bottom Gardner, mm-hmm. they would always go, Tony, get in there and practice, you know, so, you know, just... It was it was meant to it was meant for me to play bass and they helped me along. But I mean, Wynton Kelly was my godfather. I have pictures sitting on Paul Chambers' lap. You know, it's just like it's amazing stuff. I got a picture of my Miles playing with my dad at Jacks on the at that six a.m. thing. Your you dad know, so. doesn't get enough uh, uh, credit for uh, you know he wasn't like he, I guess how am I supposed to say this? He just doesn't get enough credit for being a jazz musician. My dad. Yeah. Yeah, but he was a jazz cat because he taught me. I, I, well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you start talking. About, I mean, I'm talking more about the the galaxy stuff that he did with your cousin Eddie Moore. Right, and, right. And, and just, I mean, I, you know, I think 
That's what Garcia loved. I think you told me that before. I mean, the thing about your father, he never, he broke down very complex things in very simplistic right. terms, and he was able to, uh, and he went over things repetitively, so you really got them. And I think that he provided, he was just a very, very good teacher, and he knew the fundamentals, and he, and he, and he extrapolated off of that because, I mean, he was in the jazz. That was, that was a heavy well, he was West a Coast player, jazz man. scene. He played with, he, I mean, when, when, you know, I got, I have some, uh, I have some of the outtakes. I just got them, actually, I got them the year that he passed away. Um, when, this is the last two weeks of uh, his life. You know, when we got that call, and they, you know, the doctors said, well, you know, there's nothing else we could do for him. You know, it, I'll, I'll never forget that feeling, but I, I wanted to do something special for him. So I was in L.A. the next the next Monday. This happened on a Saturday when they told us that, you know, there was nothing else they could do. So um, that Monday I was in L.A. and I was working. I did a session at um, Fantasy, which is owned by Conquer Jazz now, mm -hmm. right? And so I got the outtakes of of his um, trio stuff. I still have it if you want to hear it. Oh, man. Um, hey, um, but check this out. I knew none of the song titles, right? And my dad couldn't talk at this point these last two weeks. So the, I had a friend that worked in the, in, the, in the warehouse, and he said, I said, man, they're not going to do nothing with my dad's music. And then burn me a copy of his outtakes of his trio stuff <laughs> that they never used. And so I have it. Um, That's huge. So I, that, no, I brought it up to my dad, hmm. and I go, and I played it for my dad, and and I go, hey dad, this song is I pity the fool, and he was he would shake his head like yep, and um, and I said this song is it was he did a uh, jazz version of that tune I don't know the correct name of it but it was Billy Jean Billy Joe McAllister jumped off the tally Hatchy Bridge yeah he did that song and Lonesome Fever. Da -da 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 -da. You know, all of these, like, cool jazz tunes. I didn't even know the name of them, but I was able to tell him it because when I was a little kid, I listened to him play that stuff over and over again. You know, and, um, you know, it was, it's just an, it's amazing. The trio stuff, I have the last trio thing that he did. That, it's that thing that I sent you, um, uh, the Tenderly. Well, absolutely. Uh, right, right. No, but that, that, that outtakes is pretty... Would be pretty heavy stuff. Did your dad? Did you? I mean, they played similar. They played the same instruments, but but him, your dad and Howard Wales, did they collaborate a little bit? Did they bump into each other? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they thought. I think Howard Wales played with Jerry before my dad. Right. And yeah, they, they, there was some collaboration, and I think I'm, I played on a couple of Howard Wales records. Um, they these great guys, man. Those guys were great. Him, Brian Auger. I got to play with Brian Auger too. Um, it's like phenomenal. Unbelievable. Guy. J Jimmy Smith was like. He was like a prankster with me, because he was like, um, he, you know, he was like a black belt, right, in karate? Right. And he told me to always be alert, Tony, if you don't learn anything from me. So I'm standing on 55th and 7th Avenue <laughs> in New York, you know, not minding my own business, and all of a sudden, whop, this kick comes to my head. Oh, he my God. Tony, I told you to always be ready. And I look over, and I said, oh, my God. I was like, Uncle Jimmy, why you do that to me, man? <laughs> But he was, you know, it, you know, I grew up carrying all these people's equipment. I mean, this this is before they had the dollies for the B3. I would carry whenever Jimmy Smith was here, or my dad had to move his. That was my job. That's how I made my five dollars for the week. So, can you ta can you talk a little bit about romancing the bass and how you've um, been able to use new media and uh, to to 
direct where you want it to be heard and, and how you can get it get it out to informate different people so they can hear it? Yeah, it's really, really, um, Romance in the Bass was the album I did over a few years, with the exception of um, the one track that my dad is on. I mm -hmm. actually did that in 97. Um, uh, my dad, on his way to a gig, stopped by and played on the track. But, um, you know, with the advent of the computer, you know, you're able, and the internet, you're able to, like, transfer tracks all over. If, if somebody's not here, you're able to get them to put the guitar on where they are. Although I do have a studio, um, but sometimes we do the drums someplace else, or we'll mix it someplace else. And then through the advent of all of these iTunes, Amazon, uh, all of these digital uh, delivery systems for music, um, that record is doing really good. Um, actually, right now, it's yeah. still it's been on the charts for like seven months, and we've been touring behind it for the last seven months, um, playing theaters. And basically, I don't get any help from my dad's legacy in this medium because it's a different kind of music. It's like an urban adult contemporary. Right. So it's like I'm starting over again. Um, but you know, it's been readily accepted, and um, you know, but I, I you know. Uh, it's been really nice to be able to deliver this to so many people. And, you know, just if you flush the Internet with your music, you know, it'll get heard. And if it has some, a leg to stand on, you can get it to more people. Like, for instance, on the charts, like two weeks ago, my record got 27,000 streams around the world, which is, you know, phenomenal. Back in the old days, that couldn't happen. And, you know, people, I talk to people a lot on Facebook and other you know, they email me um, all over the world, and uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm on the top 20 in Lagos, Nigeria, you know, and, and all of these guys end up calling me and to do station IDs and stuff like that, but, you know, it's, it's you have to be really user-friendly in today's market so that if you're unknown to get known, you need to be user-friendly. I'm a musician's musician. Musicians know who I am, yeah. but as far as, uh, you know, getting a, into a broader audience, and especially this music that really, if I was playing, you know, like the Keystone Band, you know, the, um, with the, when sure. I was playing our, my dad and Jerry type music, the people love me. You know what I mean? They all know me. When I walk down the streets in Mill Valley, people are like, hey, Tony, what's up, dude? You know what I mean? It's, it's all good. But this, this uh, urban, you know, uh, I hate calling it smooth jazz, but, you know, because if you see us live, that's not what we do. We don't put you to sleep at all, so. Yeah, no, and it's just, it, I wonder, I'm, you said a bunch of stuff there. I just... You know, I mean, in some ways, it's it's convenience, and it's easier. You can say, <laughs> say, hey, you know, I need you to put your guitar track in, and just, you know, they can, you can put it up on them, and they can do it in their own way, but right. there's something about that intimacy, uh, you know, the, the the being in that studio together, mm -hmm. and, and flushing things out, and actually, you know, within that construct, I remember the skipper Henry Franklin, great bass mm -hmm. player, he, he talked about a session that he did with with uh, Michael Howe, although I think it was, you no, know, Michael told me that all those, it, what, what happened was, you know, the guys would show up, you know, Orrin Keaton was like, this is your deal, uh, it's Michael's date, go for it, and those guys, the, the accompanists, very supportive, and they would all chime in with really good ideas. That kind of gets yeah. lost, you know what I'm saying? I got to watch a lot of those sessions, those fantasy records, mm -hmm. Michael Howe, right, right, right. Um, um, Gene Ammons, and... Cannonball, I saw Cannonball make a record on Fantasy. Right. And yes, they had players, and it was incredible to watch. I saw Ron Carter there, 
you know, it was just like, it was incredible. It was a different day, though. Um, but, but that still happens, though, yeah. on records like um, with, the, with the Keystone Corner Band. We'll record that live. Exactly. We'll that. But that, and that, that, that speaks to the, the musicianship. That, that's a different type of band, different type of musicians, right? Right, right. right. You know, I mean, Vit's going yeah. to have some input, obviously. They're all going to have input, you know? Yeah, yeah, they'll all have input. And me as a producer, you know, if it gets too carried away, I'll keep it so that it's like in the same box, <laughs> but a lot of different ideas floating around. How could it get too carried away, though? That's great, man. It, you know, you don't want them to go too far. Um, <laughs> somebody has to have an idea how to pull it in. But but just for example, um, my friend Nicholas Cage just recorded with um, Alfonso Johnson and um, the rest of the guys. I forget the, the guys are all famous who he played the session with, but they went in and they did this uh, James Taylor song and they said that they, they all worked it out in the studio. And, and even though Alfonso produced it, it was good. It was really good. Right, Shower right. It's, your and, people, you love me. They did that song. Oh yeah, uh, it's like awesome. Is it Mexico? Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, shower, you know, know what it is. Um, that that to me, like, it's very. It's easier said than done because you get in to a session with a lot of big, a lot of big uh, with artists who who have their have a very some some of them have a very very uh, you know they have very strong views on how their the music should be played. So correct, if you correct. throw if you throw a few of those people into the mix, you might not get a whole lot accomplished. But right. you know, at the same time, you know, it's I you know when talk a little bit about when when you observed with your dad Jerry Khan, uh, the engineer when they were going through this stuff. How did they if ha, if they had a um, you could feel the respect right plus there's that I remember because like when we did the Twilight Zone. Um, I would, I was, that was the most I was around um, them all because um, Lesh didn't want to do it, and so he asked me if, if I would do it. Sure. Lesh played on the theme, but then I played on the rest of the episodes, even though it says something different on the record. But um, Wait, what does it say on the record? It, it, some, it says Phil Lesh, it says Merle Saunders and the Grateful Dead. But uh, no, that's really but wrong. That, that's wrong. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, no, no, I'm great, just... I got paid really well. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, but I mean, uh, that you know, what I'm saying is certain labels, certain companies, it's the label's issue because certain yeah, companies... Certain... Yeah, I'm sure it was a label thing um, because they, Phil Lesh does not care about, you know, mentioning my name. He's one of, he's one of my nicest... He's a nice exactly. Guy. No, no, no. This was the label saying, oh, we can't, we can't tell what really happened because we need to, right. you know, it's like we need to put, you know, the great... Whatever, it's like... Uh, right. You know, you deserve kudos, and now because I know that, I'm going to vigorously pursue that. I mean, I saw that those tapes circulate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I well, hey, I played on every episode. That my every because I was my dad's assistant. I programmed his keyboards, and I did the did the uh, did the bass on every show. We did it with Weir. Um, talk about really talk about the uh, talk about the the. You were going to get into something about respect. The it, respect. Okay, those guys. Um, my dad, um, Jerry, Brent, Bob Weir, and the, the respect among them as musicians was incredible. And, um, you know, it, it, it was... Could you give an example? that was never talked about. Yeah. But you could feel it. And they would never... There were boundaries that they each respected of each other, and, and there was something that they needed from each other. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and, like, I was the youngest, so... I hung out with Brent all the time, and sometimes, and then I would eat lunch usually with Brent and Bobby and my dad because we like sushi, so we would eat sushi every day. But, 
but the respect level when we played the music was there, you know, and, and I really had to step up to the plate, you know, because they could get anybody to play. It wasn't just that I was Merle's son. You know, I, if I wasn't cutting it, they would have definitely got somebody else. Right, 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 right. And then, um, and then Brent, you know, it was just like phenomenal to be around them and to see Jerry put the chords. And Jerry would like usually spend two or three hours per, probably two or three hours per episode, you know, one day or a day and a half doing his parts. And he, I mean, it was, it was great. My dad would set it up. They all, they would set each other up. You know, it's just like a great basketball team. Somebody has to set it up. Somebody has to bring the ball up. Which is on that particular session, my dad would set everything up. Then he'd bring in Weir to play with him. Well, me, it was actually Brent, Weir, my dad, and myself. We were there every day. What, every what day. was it about? I, this is so, first of all the sushi thing with with Midland is so classic, by the way. But the the what was it about uh, the the Twilight Zone? You wanted to get that pretty hypnotic effect, so you brought in your dad was playing certain keyboards and synths and Brent was playing other stuff? How did, did yeah, they, yeah, they played different stuff. Yeah, my dad played certain things and it, it was, it's so much that you have to do, you know, that, that you need to have, you know, my dad probably played organ and Brent played piano or, you know what I mean? It, and then when we really needed to get to Spacey, uh, kind of like the dead kind of vibe, um, you know, they both played at the same time. Oh, man. And, um, you know, it was, it was it was an incredible experience. It was a great job for two and a half years. How did you so so they set each other up? Were you in there playing with with them as a, a court like as a quintet or whatever you would say when Lesh was not there? You'd be actually playing live with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, I mean, for you, uh, compare that experience and how you felt that first time with with being with your dad and Jerry back in '73. Well, I had no idea, like Melvin. <laughs> I had no idea of the enormity of the whole situation. Um, it was just like I got paid, and you know, it was it was like wow. And there were like lots of people cheering, and everybody loves you, and that's a great thing when you're a kid, you know, to be accepted right. by a, by a, by, a, by just an entourage of people. And I didn't even realize what was going on, you know. Um, I also hung a lot around um, Yorma and Jack. Um, because my friend who played in Aunt Monk, Bob Steeler, and then he went, and then he, he came and played with Aunt Monk for a while. Then he got the gig with Hot Tudor. So I was around Norma and Jack too, and they and they did the same thing. Jack would would show me stuff. Jack gave me equipment. He cried one time when he saw me play like about five years ago, mm. and, that, and that that just touched my soul. And he gave me his signature bass that he had. Um, you know, it's just like you know. I mean, but these guys are all really proud of how far I've come, you know, just, um, you know, they, they just, they just think that it's really a great thing. It's no, and I think it, what, not just that, Tony, it's, it's this idea of just, I mean, everybody, every single person has, you know, their, n- life is not perfect by any stretch, and mm-hmm. you have hurdles to climb, I mean, I, I, I do right now, and all you have, all you can do is keep moving forward and keep progressing. Yeah. And that's what you've done. I mean, that's what you've done with music. It's so yeah, much yeah. easier to just say, all right, um, you know, I'm going to hang it up. But I think, really, your creativity still, still. I mean, that's what drives you. Is right. The, the, the idea only time I felt like hanging it up was when my dad passed. Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, of course. I mean, that's, but, you know. That was, I, I, had, I went through, he died on a Friday. Hmm. And, um, uh. 
went back to my studio and check this out. And this is for real story. I'm not I'm not blowing smoke up here. All of his pictures in my studio were like tilted to the side. And I never remembered seeing them all like that, you know? Mm. And um and uh um you know, and then a couple of days later it was just it, they were straight again. And I'm like, <laughs> hmm. And then I, I sat at the piano and started playing the piano and I played stuff that I never played before. Um, and I was like going, um, I don't know where it came from or whatever. And, and uh, I mean, I could play piano always, but I couldn't do this stuff. And I was playing turnarounds and two fives and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, maybe he passed through here on his way to the other side and gave me a little knowledge and he'd be happy that I, I keep going. So between that and Nardo Michael Walden talked to me and said that I got to keep going and keep the legacy going. So, you know, that, that got me back in line because for a couple of days I was just like, oh, I want, I want to do something else now. <laughs> you know, but, um, but you know, just uh, that was my life. And I didn't realize how much my heart was into my dad. You know, I kind of get mad at myself for, but I had to grow up. I get mad at myself for when I had to stop playing with him and go do other things. But I wouldn't, you know, know anything. I would just be doing that now, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, he knew, you, he knew you were ready to take the training wheels off and go out and do it on your own. Yeah, I, I, was wanted, I wanted to be a big boy, <laughs> so, so I had to go play. I mean, I played with, like, so many cool people. It's like, people, you know, it's like if, I, if we started rattling it off, it's like, you know, people think that I'm lying. But it's all true. The question I think yeah. is like, like how many times in you know, because like you have played, you know, Buffy Saint Marie, and yeah. you know, but the thing is, I mean, have you been credited on yeah. on on albums? Unlike what happened with the uh, Aerosmith. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I even played on like um, Journey's record, uh, not Journey's record, on um, Neil Sean's record, yeah, the solo record, Beyond the Thunder. That was a great experience, and I got to play with those guys in Journey. And um, then I also have played, I've been credited on every, pretty much everything I've played on, except for when people have asked me, you know, to play on stuff. And like, I played with Juice Newton, and her, the record was already in the jacket. And, and then I played on it so that they really couldn't credit me, although they, they did send me the gold record for it. Um, and then I played on Rick Danko's record. <laughs> Wait, I mean... I mean that doesn't sound right, though. I mean, I guess yeah, that's, I guess that's the music. It, sometimes it happens. Yeah. Sometimes it happens. Right. I played on Rick Danko's record, and I couldn't say anything until he passed away. So. Well, I'm glad you can. I'm glad you can talk about it now freely. You know, um, you, you're you're going on a. We talked recently um, off air, and you mentioned that you yeah. you were uh, <laughs> taking the romancing no, no, the, romancing the bass group. Um, uh, on a southeast tour, uh, right. like, uh, Alabama. How did you even? Uh, I I'm, I think it's really important for musicians to understand how you even were able to network to find a venue to draw a fan base in sort of these places that are are not re- they're kind of off the beaten path. But I think that's a really cool thing. I can tell you exactly. Um, my record is on the charts of smoothjazz.com, and um, they send out e-blasts about people. Um, and, um, and so the radio disc jockeys called me and they were really excited for me to come down there. And, um, then what they do is they pump up the record so that you can draw 300 people or so to a little club, you know, and make it worth their while to, to fly you there and, and put you up. What kind of radio stations are they? 
Um, they're like, I guess, uh, smooth kind of stations. Uh, yeah. But I mean, they're they're music formatted stations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And and. Uh, and and what kind of like they 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 fly you out there they 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 take care of you well or is it is you know and they get you a good severance for it? I mean yeah it's fine. I mean I've done some really good ones like with Jeffrey Osborne and and um, uh, Huge Groove and uh, David Benoit. Hold on for a second. Hold on. I got it. I, this is a great question. So they're playing they're playing romancing the bass the the CD on the radio. But you, you say that when your band shows up, that's not what it's all about live. Well, we play some of the romance and the bass stuff, but we play other stuff too. And I, I think mean, it's, it's not, it's not, what do you say? It's just not, it's not boring. Right, 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 right. It's not boring. I mean, for instance, I have a rapper in the group. And, um, you know, as well as I play by myself, you know, like, which, which would be like, you know, like, uh, like like a jazz cat. Wow. And so wow. That, so I mean, the audience. Have have you been able to gauge the reaction of audiences in different states that mm-hmm. if, if they come to the show anticipating hearing a certain sound when they're actually going to hear that plus a lot more? Yeah, they they leave. They they buy the re- they. I sell tons of records at the gigs. You're a genius, um, man. Your dad yeah, would be yeah, really we, we proud of you. On, on big shows, we average between fifty and a hundred CDs sold. Which is phenomenal um, yeah. uh, for me, and uh, you know, and it's—I mean, just for instance, we open the show with "Heartbreak Hotel" into one of my songs. We don't do it like Michael Jackson, but we do play that <laughs> song like that. I mean, it's kind of—it's kind of raw and rocky, and that's the smooth jazz. People go, "Oh, oh," and then they go, "Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay." He can't play. <laughs> what? Why? Why? Why do you think, um, uh, objectively, people's ears? have changed to, uh, because, you know, at the core, you know, that, like, if you try, if you had to play that stuff all the time, just the boring plaid stuff, I, I mean, I think you would get off the road. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, yeah. and you know, why, why have people's ears been honed to, to appreciate that kind of soft sort of, it's just so, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of soul in it. You know, I respect all of the smooth jazz people. I just to say that I really love mm-hmm. them all. But you know, I saw Cannonball play, so it's like you know I seen like Miles play. I've seen I played with Dave Liebman for two years. I mean, it's like you know I played with Richie Byrack, the piano player. You know, I I grew up watching Hampton Hawes and Joe Sample and you know people like that play piano. So the only thing that I don't like is we don't hear that stuff anymore. Right. Um, that's what I don't like. Why? I, I Why do you... Th- everybody. Yeah. I love Brian Culbertson, all of these people. Everybody's cool. And, um, you know, I think that everybody's great. But I just don't understand why you would... Like, one of my favorite songs right now is... Um, I love to listen to George Duke playing um, Sweet Baby. Mm-hmm. That song that he had a hit. But I love him just playing it on the acoustic piano. He does have a version on his jazz record with him just playing uh, uh, it on acoustic piano, man. It's like off the hook. And it's like way more jazzy than than the hit was that he and Stanley had. But I mean, if you even go back farther and you do like, you go to George Duke, it was his first album on a, a label called MPS. He did it with... 
Uh, he brought in John Hurd on bass, Indugu mm-hmm. on drums. And oh, that stuff is great, dude. Ayerto, I mean, when I hear that, yeah, that, that when when, when I when you say George Duke, that's what I hear is that like. Oh, see, now, now, don't get me wrong. Yeah. When I'm at home listening to music, <laughs> I listen to that stuff. If I'm just, <laughs> I, I listen to real music. You know what I mean? I mean that because that's the hardest stuff to play. And what do I practice late at night? I, I'm like playing like either saxophone stuff. That, that people have, um, there's this great sax player, Charles McNeil, who, um, uh, you know, he notates everything off of, of famous people's solos. So I just try to slow them down and figure out how they do the, did the solos. Um, and uh, and then I listen to, like, I, I listen to all kind of, like, I'm doing a George DeVivier bass line right, right. now. And, and um, I got the chart, and now I'm playing it with him. Because of YouTube, it's cool, because everything's on, on, on the computer. And so I just slow it down and figure out a section at a time. To so me, I, I to really me though, like, like to hear that stuff. You've you've and, made it, you've made an argument here, like for the the necessity for new technology because of just the idea that you can do stuff with Davivier and things like that. And mm-hmm. then oh, look at all these kids! All of these kids are coming up playing like really good, and that's because they. You know, they're not like when, when we were kids, we had to put the needle back on the record. Now they just back it up a little bit and play it again. You know, and it's easy, and you can you have so much access to seeing people play music. I would also argue that whether it was Cannonball or your father or Jerry or Groove Holmes or Wes Montgomery, there were serious leaders back then. Serious yeah. musical leaders that Dizzy, I mean, the list is longer than you could even go. And there's a few that are still, like, I mean, Chico Hamilton, Howard, Horace Silver, uh, Gerald Wilson. There's, I mean, guys I've talked to, I mean, those, I mean, they're, but they're, but when they were in their prime, you didn't screw around. So as a result, there was, it seemed to me that, that especially for African Americans, there was a period of real prosperity there. And for music, uh, for, and they and and there were a lot of them could play instruments, and you lack mm-hmm. leadership. But and you know what? No matter, you know what? All the rock guys, they know that those guys could play. Um, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're very well aware of it. One, I was playing with Crosby and Stills one night, and um, and uh, you know we're playing, and they're like looking at me, going, "Tony, is this cool what I'm playing?" I'm going like, "Dude, you guys got forty thousand people here." <laughs> You guys. Why are you worried about? Uh, don't I be modest. That, that must have been playing. a thrill, man. That must have been a thrill. No, it was. Yeah. But, but I'm serious. Yeah. It really happened. They go, well, is this part cool, Tony? I'm going like, <laughs> you guys are swimming arenas, and you're wondering what I think about what you're playing. I said I'm flattered, but yeah, yeah, what you're playing is great. You know what I mean? And it was, it, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. They talk, they listen to me about the rhythm of songs. I listen to them about words because they, because I. Um, I remember Crosby telling me, he says, Tony, don't you know the words for this song? Oh, I asked him, uh, hey, Dave, why do we sing Deja Vu? Uh, no, why do we sing Wait, We Have All Been Here Before on Deja Vu? He says, Tony, you don't know what that means? I'm like, no. And he goes, well, you don't know about the words of our songs? I said, no, I just know the bass line. <laughs> he, goes, you know. he says, you don't know. I said, I said, I know you're famous, but I, you know, I don't really know. And he goes, dude, we wrote Mr. Cabarini Man. And I was going like, and? He said, didn't you listen to those words? So then we sat around his kitchen table one night, and I have a cassette tape of him teaching me, him, Jay David, and somebody else, teaching me how to uh, dissect songs and make it, you know, make the songs better. And, and then I've, I've been a better songwriter since then. 
You know what I mean? Because I, I was just worried about the music, and I thought the, the words were an afterthought. But when I was around, oh, I was around Roger McQueen at that same time. And so they're going like, you know, the birds, we were like, we were, we were known our whole period was because we were wordsmiths. And, and uh, you know, we made sense out of it. And I said, that's why the, and then, you know, we start talking about why the Beatles songs made sense. And the words, you know, when you listen to Eleanor Rigby, what it really means, and, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man, and, and just, you know. And then I listened to the song when Quinevere, when Crosby lost his, his, his favorite girlfriend at that time. You know, it's, it, 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 it's definitely emotional and moving. In the same instance, when I listen to Sonny Stitt, or would play with my cousin Eddie Moore. I would I'd be at those rehearsals and those guys would play so passionately, you know, you know, just be incredible, incredible thing, same kind of thing. Why? Why? Uh, yeah. Where? I mean, where, where has where is the passion? I mean, like I think what you were hitting on earlier is true. The musicians coming up today, whatever, regardless of the idiom of music, they're technically very proficient, but they're lacking. Oh, yeah. In my mind, Tony, it just mm -hmm. comes down to life experience. You look at your father, mm -hmm. uh, Army service, uh, mm -hmm. you know, had to raise a family, um, you know, worked multiple jobs, but, but saw, saw people for who they were, didn't, didn't stereotype anybody, and worked. Uh, every, he, uh, he, was, he grew up during a time when, every, when, the, when the playing field was very fair. And, and well, and plus too, if you realize, you know, that happened in the '60s. You know, him and him and Booker T were some of the first jazz cats to play with the rock guys. That well, so what I'm saying, what here's what I'm getting to. What I'm getting to <laughs> is this idea that it's people's life experiences that shape their soul. Correct. All right. So that's what was coming out of all those cats, Con Saunders, everyone, you know, Garcia, everybody. From that time, <laughs> um, and and it was because of life experience. And I'd say younger generations, my generation, uh, an, a, a much a much more um, jaded is jaded is the wrong word. We just have not had to deal with the kind of we haven't had we haven't been put through the same kind of tests, and therefore the sp the sp the passion and the dis I mean those guys blew because they knew it they blew like it was their last day every day, right? And right. now it's like we got a you know, it's you know it's hard to you just don't want to oversimplify, but you can't. I mean, for you, during your formative years, you were listening to Cannonball and playing with Jerry and, and your dad, and and now I, all those records are the records that I have, and it's the crossover groups that I thrive on. It's like Big Black and you know Howard Wales or your dad and Garcia, the flip flopping of jazz. And 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 rock and bluegrass. I mean, really, that was your your dad and 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 uh, Jerry were more uh, sort of Appalachia than anything else, you know. Did, and if you notice um, in the groups, they did harder songs. Um, you know, they didn't just do easy songs. No way. Really hard. But it was jazz. I mean, I I listen to their jazz stuff, and you can tell. I mean, you can tell right off the bat, Jerry's just not. He he doesn't sound like a jazz guitar player. So right, right. So, so some of the stuff. But you could hear also. What, what I, because I listen, even when I listen to that stuff now, you can hear when he caught on. And the, you know, you can hear it when he doesn't know what's going on, and you can hear it when he caught on. Wow, wait, wait, wait when would you on. say he, I'm curious, I want to do that now. When do you think was the year he caught on? Like Legion of Mary, or, or, or before that? Well, when him and my dad would have those private sessions, you know, they would, they would, they would, he would figure it out. And then he started learning how to play over more extensive changes. Um, and, and, and it made him a really, 
really a better player. Now, I'm the kind of guy that goes, you know, I love the Grateful Dead, everything that I heard, and I think that they really sounded great in the 90s. You know, I thought because they went back and made everything, they tightened up the loose ends to some of those songs. You know what I mean? Wow. And uh, yeah. the music sounded so good. You know what I mean? And, and I would go to a show and I would go, wow, look, they changed that part. And, you know, they've grown as players. And now when I hear Phil, you know, when I hear, hear Phil with his groups, you know, he's really, really doing, doing really good, playing really good stuff. And, uh, you know, they all, they all are, you know, they just, they progressed as for being just, you know, uh, country, you know, when they played in Palo Alto and bluegrass type. Uh, you know, some of the bluegrass stuff that they played with Vassar Clements, that stuff was pretty intricate. You know, and David Grisman, that stuff was really intricate. Unbel- it's, uh, you know, and it's just, uh, and it's great to have you um, as, a, as a modern day player thriving in the modern world and actually being able to... Uh, and to be able to hold on to the experiences of the past and stay in contact with people like that and reach out to, to zealots like myself because there's a lot of guys. I mean, I've done over 150 interviews now, Tony, and I've interviewed a lot of guys you know. And, you know, by and large, a lot of them are still, they've, they've reinvented themselves. You know, they've figured out how to survive. But by and large... Most of the, uh, a lot of, some of them that haven't, and uh, it, it, it must be very compelling because I'm not going to name names per se, but there are guys who were just titans and at the top of the field uh, in the time period that I, cr- I cover, and now they're doing something else, and I can't imagine from a musical point of view that must be devastating, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I talked to a piano player the other day, um, and he wanted my brother's phone number because my brother's opening a club in mm-hmm. Townsville. And he says, I'm trying to keep the traditional jazz thing alive. And I'm going like, you are, you are keeping the traditional jazz thing alive just by doing what you do. Um, it's, not, it's not like you have to make a statement of that you are jazz. I think that in the back in the day, you know, like your jazz cat, the purest of it all, the world's too diversified now, and it's too easy to go from San Francisco to South Africa or to to Denmark and go to Japan. Right, right, right. We, we all have access to each other now. So, yes, it's changed a little bit, and, um, you know, but the, but the steel, that stuff, I mean, uh, that, 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 uh, that great upright bass playing, when you hear somebody really playing the upright really good, there's nothing like that. Yeah, and, and it's funny, I have... Go ahead, continue. I was going to say, when you hear, like, an acoustic, when you hear somebody play like McCoy... You know, I hear those runs with those 11s in there. To me, there's nothing like that. But, so I play it on electric piano. You know, sometimes when I play electric piano on the court, the jazz guys, they'll go, oh, that's a jazz chord you're trying to use on your music. I say, no, that's just what's in me. That's just what I hear on this particular song. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And, and, um, yeah, it's jazzy as hell, because that's what I like. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm... uh, I'm promoting a concert uh, here in Tucson with, uh, uh, I'm honoring an unsung hero from uh, Sierra Vista, uh, Southern Arizona, He's a, his name is Lamont Arthur, he's an organ player and a, and a piano player, and it's, it's amazing to sit in on these rehearsals, Tony, because I put the, you know, he, we put a quintet together, and um, you know, Lamont, me and Lamont are pretty connected spiritually, and it's kind of come together very naturally, but he, he uh, 
you know, everybody's idea of what they think somebody else thinks fusion or jazz or funk is, is totally, I'm, I'm not, like, when I had to explain to them at one point, uh, you know, I'm not, int- I didn't hire, I didn't bring you guys in to uh, play standards. I, I, I had you guys come in because of the, you guys are all heavyweights. I want you to play original stuff, or if you're going to do something, do it from like an urban gut bucket soul kind of thing. Like, and all of a sudden, the guitar player starts singing "Inner City Blues" by Marvin Gaye, and they bust into this totally funky thing. Right. It's right. a mindset. It's a it's a state of mind that right. that that uh, that our society is is out of now, and you know, and, and that is that's very bothersome. That's part of the reason I'm doing this because I just want and I saw those guys go back to the sissy soul strut in milliseconds. Now not everybody can do that because it's really outside the box and you know that. Not everybody you can You know you know who told me to play out of the box when I was really young? Who? And you, you interviewed him. Um I think the guy did you ever interview Calvin Keys? Dude, my my one of my I mean I posted a picture of him on Facebook the other day, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought that I heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. Man, Calvin Keyes, when I was uh when I was like now he came and played with my dad when I was about nineteen, twenty and uh and he goes, Tony, did you ever hear Cucumber Slumber? And I was like, No. <laughs> and he played me that song by Alfonso Johnson. I just I could not believe that bass line. And uh, he said, yeah, I want, what I want you to do, he said, you're a good player, but I want you to think out the box. And then there was also another time when I'm playing a gig with him and my cousin Eddie Moore, and I didn't know the changes to this straight-ahead tune. And I said, Calvin, what are the changes? He said, Tony, you need to learn it. So they wouldn't tell me. Wow. Wow, dude, Calvin. I mean, this is, we are getting this. That's great. You know what? He, we talked for three hours. I mean, I, 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 he did a concert for me last year. He was just unbelievable. But he read me the riot act because he got, I, I, I didn't, uh, it wasn't the payday he was expecting. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, um, he did talk about your father, but I could tell that your dad identified him real quick as a, a guy, a humble, a humble guy with Midway, you know, Nebraska, Omaha roots, but mm-hmm. really talented. And, uh, as always, you know, it could just flat. And, and, and he can, you know what I mean? and what I like about Calvin, he can look you in the eye, no matter if you're Tony Saunders or you're the skipper, Henry Franklin or whoever it is. And he's, he's secure with himself enough to, to, he can teach very, he's a good teacher. Mm-hmm. He's a really good teacher and, and he can walk you through stuff, very proficient. And it just seems like, um, I guess Tony, as I conclude here, I just I want to I want to say thank you for uh, for for continuing to hold on to those those feelings of the past, and I'm, I'm sure it was really it's really pretty easy because you basically hung out with some of them. I mean, I just interviewed David Gans. Gans oh, well, yeah. Gans said that that Owsley Stanley, when he first met you know members of the Dead, and mm-hmm. and you know they were easily some of the smartest people he'd ever met in his life. And for you to be with, and then and then you getting absorbed with the blues and and the fam the family connect uh, with it, you know your family musical family with the dead and then all the jazz cats like Herbie coming over, you know what a beautiful existence and you know what you should be proud because you've carried the torch and you continued to move on and it's that spirit that keeps you moving on and I really I'm really happy about it man. Oh, well, thank you very much, man. It's, it's, it's all music. And I think that, you know, my dad used to always tell me, just push yourself a little more. 
you know, just push yourself all the time and, you know, just keep on moving forward and, and you'll, you'll do some, you know, you'll do some better things in music. So, you know, I, I just keep that philosophy with them and, you know, you come to my house, it's like a museum, a Merle Saunders museum, so. Well, I'll be there. If, listen, if, if I, you ever uh, want to see any stuff of my dad, <laughs> you can come to my house and have everything. <laughs> hey, Tony, man, much love and, uh, and we'll talk real soon. Have a great Memorial Day weekend, okay. man. Okay, man, you have a great time too. Thanks okay. again, Jake. Peace, T. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.